Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the content of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Weekend, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interweb as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by David Zoll and sitting in for the second time for Sarah Condon, Leslie Hall, who is from Cincinnati, Ohio, goes to my friend Mandy Smith's church and is a friend of the show and of Mockingbird. So we're thrilled to have her with us on the cast this week. But before we get to another weekend, I had the distinct singular privilege of having a conversation this week that it almost broke the mocking cast, like Kim Kardashian broke the internet. I mean, this is, uh, it was uh, of epic proportions. I sat down in New York City, in our New York City studio setup at St. George's Church with Leon Leibowitz, senior writer for Tablet Magazine and co-host of Unorthodox, probably my favorite podcast to listen to. It's the only podcast I listen to every week on the day it comes out. If you are listening to this with young children in the car, there are a couple instances of some explicit language in the conversation. Not many, but a couple. Here on the Mockingcast, which is, I mean, this is a really special moment for the podcast. We are, it's, it's really, I mean, what it, we deign to call this. It is the ecumenical apocalypse. The ecumenical apocalypse. Allele. Leibowitz, which if you've listened to the cast for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about Unorthodox many times. It's a podcast I continue to find uh, inspiring, funny, properly irreverent, and sometimes you even get professional eaters. In person. Yeah. Which is something that you need to see and smell to believe. Well, you've done a lot in your life, and in a second I'm going to get into it, but I think that, that you sitting and live narrating. I mean, you could have been one of the great sports broadcasters of all time. I if mean, sports, uh, thank you for that. But, but that would require sports being what I consider sports, which is consuming, uh, how much did he do? 42 matzo balls in six minutes. Or latkes, latkes. Oh, latkes, right. Uh, 42 latkes. And see, it's, it's, I've been with that guy uh, a few times. Uh, if that was a sport, which is my idea of what a, a, the human body was put here to achieve, then yes, I, I would have been one of the greats. Because I get that. And your descriptions were so, like, I mean, this is back to, like, the brilliant, this is like a Howard Cosell kind of, you're like, these are not normal latkes. These are the size of an infant's head. Like, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, wow. I mean, this guy could be, he could have been a big time. He could have, like, you know, when you meet Don Moses Lerman uh, and you try to train with him uh, in all sorts of uh, professions, because uh, they, they have different different fields in the competitive eating world. They have the, the matzo balls, the latkes, uh, the dreaded pastrami rye sandwich. I tried once with him at Carnegie Deli to do five and a half pounds in an hour. And, and I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm a fat Jew. I walked into that establishment thinking, you know, I'm I'm going to nail this. About two pounds later, I, I was I was ready to meet my maker. I could not even begin. And Don Lerman, who's who's middle aged, uh, who's little, he just he just swallowed and swallowed and swallowed. That is amazing. I mean, that and I'm glad you said that you were Jewish because people were thinking Jainist or maybe 
Congregationalist New England. I think if you hear Leibowitz, you really think Congregationalist New England. Yeah, we're, we're maybe with it's that. flirting with Jainism. Yeah, yeah. My people came on the. Uh... <laughs> Because I'd picture you also... <laughs> Whatever the Jewish Mayflower. I'm sure most people, unless you had said some, something, I think would have thought vegan. So, I mean... Um, <laughs> Talil, you are... My people came on the El Al Mayflower. Talil, <laughs> you, uh, you are one of the hosts of Unorthodox, which, again, is a great podcast. Our listeners, just uh, Google it, uh, Unorthodox Podcast. It's amazing. Thank you. And I am drinking um, phenomenal rye. Uh, dad's hat, if we may plug it, uh, in a church in the middle of the day. So I would say my uh, life to-do list is accomplished. I have nothing more to do on so this planet. Is this That's the, it. Is this the closest you've had to a real uh, like conversion? Because you were saying, because <laughs> duo, you almost went Episcopalian for an yeah. and he brought triscuits and unsweetness too. I mean, you really, really, really took. No, no, you take the deck, and you know, pour me another glass and and make a, a little bit more of a direct ask, and I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to negotiate here. We're in the sacristy. I <laughs> I have there. Prayer, I could I could I could consecrate these. Uh, I could consecrate these. Goldfish, pizza flavored goldfish, uh, and the dad's hat. And this could be. Which, by the way, is the goyishiest snack you could have ever imagined. The pizza flavor, really. I mean, no Jew would ever serve you pizza flavored anything. Yeah. It'd be plain. Yeah. You know, that's why you like the unsweetness. You've already, already, yeah. You've already shown your, uh, your stripes. You like your, you like your beverages straight, straight up and your, and your, Party snacks flavored. <laughs> My goldfish, like that's the equivalent <laughs> of an apple teeny. Yes, it is. So you're a journalist, an author, media critic, and most importantly, are there not enough of them? It's a burgeoning field. You're a video game scholar. I'm a video game scholar. You wrote a book about video games. I wrote a book about video games. And I got a PhD in video games, which uh, seven year old me is still very happy about. And uh you are a writer, senior writer. Right for Tablet Magazine. For tablet Magazine. Were you a sophomore for a while, and they were like giving you swirlies to hit the author? They, they hazed me. <laughs> yeah, they sent me down to cover APAC for a year as my. Uh... No, you know I'm very fortunate to be on the uh, on, on on the founding team. Uh, my friend Alana Newhouse, uh, who's a miracle uh, in this world, founded the magazine and asked me if I wanted to do it. And and because I believe, like you guys, that talking about religion in a way that that makes sense in the world and isn't, um, you know, isn't just kind of stern and severe and isn't just, uh, uh, trivializing and tries to be cool and popular, but actually tries to have a serious conversation in a way that, that means something and, and makes sense in your life. Uh, there's nothing that I was happier to do. And I'm, I'm so overwhelmed and grateful that it has been going so well. Yeah. It's a great magazine. I encourage our listeners go over to tablet. It's tabletmag.com. Dot com. It's tabletmag.com. All right. Who else would let me make, you know, about 10 Holocaust jokes a week? It's very little, few places like that. Left. Yeah, I, I actually told one last week on our podcast. I, I gave you full credit for the citation, <laughs> but it was it was the one about knock, knock. Who's there? The Holocaust. The Holocaust too. I thought you said you'd never forget. <laughs> <laughs> it really never gets old. No, it, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't. I sometimes walk around the house and just say to my wife, knock. it's pretty great. Yeah, my kids are five and three. I'm waiting for them to uh, learn about the Holocaust so I could start. I could start with them. You it. don't hear that, right? You're, you know what? My kids are five and three. I'm just dying for them, dear, with the Holocaust. Hey, darlings. You know what we're going to do next week? We're going to take you to Yad Vashem. We're going to teach you all about Auschwitz. It's going to be great. 
<laughs> Look no. at the zoo. We're going to go to. Yeah. This is getting dark very quickly. Uh, and you also uh, are visiting prof at Columbia or NYU rather. I was. You were. I'm, I'm, I'm on break now. You're on break now. From, That's from the professorial Because you're, you're visiting. You can't just. It's, you, uh, some years. You can't send two years <laughs> on a couch. People can't. That's exactly right. It was a three year visit. Uh, I enjoyed my visit. Did your students love you? I mean, well, it's hard for me to tell. I'd like to sit here and say, oh, yes, of course. But I'm a professor of video games. You know, my students would love me if I were an inanimate object because I'm the guy who comes and be like, and today we'll play, you know, Mega Man 10. Yeah, it's I think it's more the class than me, but I had a blast. Uh, and if but I, there are certain kids who are like, so, oh, my gosh, Mega Man 10, Mega Man Jump the Shark, it's Mega Man 6. Please. You, you old people today and your weird references. Now, you were born in Israel. I was. And just like, so your parents, Iris and Ronnie, you're, is it, I mean, I, I feel like this is fair game because you talked about it on the Father's Day podcast. I did. Your father is an Israeli of some acclaim. But he is. He is the country's uh, famousest bank robber. He was known as the Motorcycle Bandit. That he was. And didn't they actually do a stamp that commemorated him? Uh, they, they had a design in the stamp competition. Uh, he, you know, he's a full-time celebrity. Uh, he just did a, a commercial for an, an, a motorcycle insurance company. Uh, he's, a, he's a well-known and well-loved figure, uh, which, you know, honestly baffles me to this day because I, I don't understand the sort of reverence. Uh, he is a sort of a Robin Hood figure, uh, except for he never gave to the poor. He just stole from the rich. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he, um, grew up in this very wealthy family. Uh, and when he was about my, the age I am at now, about 36, 37, uh, his own father called him in and said, well, you know, it's, um, kind of time you got a job. <laughs> it's, you have a family now. You may want to consider a career in something. And my father, who, who's always believed the edict about do what you love, was like, well, you know, I could really only think about one thing I would absolutely love doing. Uh, which was robbing banks, uh, which fits his, his sort of personality, which fits the kind of, you know, Steve McQueen, Rolex wearing, motorcycle driving, gun toting, you know, guyhood ethos of his life. Uh, and turns out he was really good at it. He robbed 21 banks, uh, over a year and a half, uh, led this kind of a very weird double life. Uh, but did amazing things. He would, uh, understand, for example, that the last place anyone would ever look for a bank robber is the bank. So he would run out of the bank, having just robbed it and turn the corner, take off his helmet and very calmly walk right back into the bank. And then the police would arrive shortly thereafter and said, everyone has to leave. And he would sort of look, you know, really uh, sadly at the officer and said, ah, man, I, I really just need to make this quick deposit. Is it okay? And the officer's like, yeah, but quickly, this is now a crime scene. And, and he would deposit the money back in the bank. And this was before computers. So, then the money was the money he just robbed was virtually untraceable uh, back in the same circulation system of the bank. It's kind of genius. Wow. Yeah. This is Thomas Crown affair stuff. Yeah. Only, you know, only with more guns. Is the most painful part of that, like you mentioned, the double life thing, like it, like it, it, the fact that like there's this thing going on that's like, and for ignoble things. I mean, if you, if you're double life in the CIA, your kid finds out about it. that could be but like you kind of but for the 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 kind of adrenaline ignoble kind of thing is that like 
Was that the most painful part of it? Well, you know, if if we're being serious, which is which is sometimes hard to do yeah. when talking about what is basically some B grade Hollywood movie, right? Um, it is literally absurd, like in Latin, right, without no, meaning. I mean, it's it's completely. like I mean, yeah, but you know, in one sense at least. I, I think I think the the most sad thing about it, uh, for me at least, is knowing that he had no other vehicle uh emotionally and spiritually to 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 deal with what he was feeling because he, he clearly didn't just hop into this because uh it was just you know all fun and games he clearly got to it because he felt a whole host of feelings including resentment of his own father including a tremendous pressure to succeed in his own right including some sort of very warped understanding of what masculinity is um and and he made this choice which was really uh, in many non-trivial senses, it, it was it was a completely reasonable, straightforward choice for him because his world was so his his mental world was so limited that he couldn't even you know I I I reckon he's not easy talking about that kind of stuff. So we never really sat down and had a proper conversation. But he, I don't really think that he got that this was something he could have actually have avoided, if that makes sense. And I wish he I wish he got that. I wish he had a different avenue i wish he had some other place to turn to in his life that would have made the pressures that he must have felt uh go away is this why he became like a writer and a communicator i mean on some level like i assume that had a lot to do with it although although my my infatuation started before he was arrested it it was always apparent to me that if one really wanted to communicate (laughs) one wrote a book about it uh, because I think there's a certain class of kind of like outsidery weirdos, uh, that are never really on the inside, even if they're born with all the right privileges, just sort of end up, you know, you're the kid at school sitting there looking at your friends being like, I'm observing this. I'm not really here. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just watching. Um, but, but, but having this, this kind of jolt, certainly pushed me along uh, the path. I I would say, if anything, this is probably one major reason why I seriously became interested in theology. Because, you know, when you're 13 and and your life is done fucked beyond belief, um, then you start asking really, really tough questions. And and you expect answers. And, And some of the answers, or at least some of the avenues of inquiry, lead you to this moment of saying, huh, well then, then I'm 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 going to go a bit wider here. I'm I'm going to start inquiring what what is there out there that isn't me or larger than me or more meaningful than me, and then you start getting into really interesting stuff. Did you grow up observant uh, in Israel? I mean, what was your religious life like before that? So my great great grandfather was this um, legendary rabbi. Uh, who was the head of the ultra orthodox community of Jerusalem? You know, I'm talking, I'm talking early 1900s here. Please um, tell me in the evening he went out and killed werewolves or something. In the evenings, <laughs> the evenings he did blow and danced to disco. Uh, it's just no. like this legendary rabbi in the 19th century. I'm just picturing this like, <laughs> right. were- and he killed the werewolves. <laughs> he actually created a monster and reanimated it Ooh. as it took its, uh, he invented the golem. He, uh, he was very, very hardcore. He, um, believed firmly that Zionism was a horrible, horrible idea. He believed firmly that uh, the only way for the Jewish state to come about is through an act of God and the Messiah. 
And he's sitting there uh, in Jerusalem and he's seeing all these secular, you know, heathens uh, basically drinking uh, and eating pork and, and having sex with one another. Uh, and it pained him because he really believed that this was Jews, I mean, the, the first pioneers who settled modern day Israel. Uh, and he believes this is a complete abomination of, of the real, you know, teachings of the Torah. So he then makes common cause with the Jordanians. And he writes to the Jordanian king and he says, hey, uh, those Jews, those pioneers from Russia, those Zionists, those guys who are talking about a state, no, those guys are complete heathens. Those are not real Jews. We real Jews. How about you come over, take over Jerusalem, and then you become the boss and we'll be faithful to you. So the Haganah, which is the, the pre-state of Israel uh, underground military group, uh, is so miffed by this that they decide to assassinate him. But you can't assassinate him because he's like this big rabbi and spiritual leader of many people. So they assassinate his second-in-command, uh, who was this closeted gay uh, Catholic-born convert to Judaism named uh, Jacob Dahan. Very interesting guy, poet, uh, ended up living with... Do you feel like when, when you get a guy like amazing. that, I mean, you, that's like a dream convert for religion. I mean, you, you, that's like, that's amazing. Yep. That needs, in the next version of the Hanukkah song, somewhere that guy needs to be. <laughs> closet <laughs> gay, closet gay, Palestinian boy lover, Jacob Dehan is a Jew. Uh, they shot him. Uh, they waited for him to leave synagogue one Friday night, and then they just tapped him on the shoulder. He turned around, three bullets to the chest, uh, and he fell dead. And that was a warning to great great grandpa. You know, stop talking to the Jordanians. So my family really has always had a way of settling its affairs in the most kind of violent, uh, inadequate way imaginable. Do you think that, and you're getting at that age, like you said, your dad was like, do you feel like you're going to become like a soup, like a vigilante now or something to kind of write the it, sort of the colorful cycle? You know, I really think that, that, that I try to do that. Uh, this is the lamest, absolute, most kind of just trying to get out of it. Uh, answer i think i kind of do this in my writing because my writing often is it's, it's not angry but it's it's sort of you know it shouts <laughs> it tries to make a point uh in a way that's not you know polite or intellectual here's the thing like i i don't feel like an intellectual at all maybe it's again the religious thing because i i feel i feel faith i feel moved I, I i want change i don't want to opine on something or analyze something i want to change shit and that's that's a totally different emotional landscape See, you're saying that, that, so, cause I was asking if you were observant. So like you got the great grandfather, but like, as you're like, you're growing up, I mean, are you Shabbat comes around or are you like at services or, or, you know, Shabbat will come around. Um, you'll watch TV, you'll drive, uh, but you will keep six hours between milk and meat. Uh, you will of course only eat kosher. You will, of course, go to synagogue in, in the frequency when it is appropriate to go to synagogue. You Wait, how much, course, how, as a kid, how much was that for you? It was, you know, not weekly, but, uh, but about, you know, regular enough to know, to know what's what and to know what the prayers are like and how the, definitely all the holidays and definitely say once, twice a month of, of good, solid, uh, presence. Uh, well, I mean, you, I mean, a lot of Episcopalians would say that's indecent twice a month. <laughs> Like, that's, I mean, that's good. If, on certain mainline Protestant scales, you'd be, a, you'd be a religious enthusiast, and that's not, that's not a good, that's not a good phrase. Even that, 
Who is this zealot? What visits the show twice a month? Duo is going to listen to this and say, "No, I retract my letter of offer for Episcopalianism. That's just too much religion. It's indecent." <laughs> See, but here's the thing that really always interested me. Like, I looked at my mother and my grandmother, who were hardcore. My grandmother on Yom Kippur, which is you know the Day of Atonement, the big kind of awesome holiday. Literally, she would tear sheets of toilet paper in advance. I was like. Grandma, what are you doing? It's like, God will be angry if you thy shalt not tear the toilet paper. I was like, look, I know God said don't eat. I'm down with that. I know the turning off of the light and on. It's fine. But really? The toilet paper? Like, God knows that we all poop, right? It's pretty much in the daily prayers. Not Kim Jong-il. Uh, you know, right. We're Kim, Ch- Kim, Kim Jong-il Jong- doesn't. That's we're right. That's Kim in Jong-un. me. We're yeah. not We're not North Korean despots. Uh, and so I always had the kind of weird feelings that they... They, they were, they were, they were God fearing people, but not necessarily believing people. Uh, and so I sort of rebelled against this my entire sort of teenage years. I was like, you guys, like, I've never heard any real, like, moving to some kind of faith from you. I've only always heard, like, thou shalt not, or else someone will be angry. And then when I kind of started making my own path, which is probably around, you know, 16, 17, and started seriously studying, I was like, wow, there's, there's an entirely different, it's an entirely different realm there. And, and this is why kind of I think if, if there's any message that I really care about and, and, and try to, if I may, uh, evangelize for, it's this. That You say that like when people come on an orthodox and say, I want to use a little Yiddish <laughs> for clamp. You know, if, I, if I can talk, I'm if, if I can talk Christian now. <laughs> evangelize. <laughs> if I may evangelize, he said holding the whiskey in the middle of the day. Uh, I, 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 I want you to do something. You know, I want you to do anything at all. Uh, I don't really care what it is. Uh, you want to read something? Fine. You want to observe something? Fine. You want to pray? That's great. Just get in there. Just, just, just understand that this is something that you need to, to, to grapple with, to reckon with. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, sadly hasn't really always been the, the message, uh, that we American Jews send or Israeli Jews for that matter, uh, send out to the world. I think that's kind of what I believe. It's funny that you said you say that because as you were talking just now, I was thinking about something you wrote recently about preacher, and you said this is great. I'm going to quote you at length, which I mean, who wouldn't? I would love to be quoted to me at length. Well, please, yeah. Plus, I I won't even. I'm I'm just enough whiskey into this conversation to not even know that I even wrote. Whatever it is. That's okay. Then I'm quoting. um, Quote whatever you want. Maimonides, except (laughs) he didn't watch the show, but. you say Seth Rogen wrestled with this theme in his excellent 2015 uh, movie. And you're talking like religion being more than just like, you know, kind of punctiliar observance or mm-hmm. something. Um, in his excellent 2015 movie, The Night Before, a meditation on loss and guilt and communion masquerading as a gross out buddy comedy. And he's doing it again in Preacher, a theological track underscoring its weighty questions with a liberal dose of ass kicking, mm-hmm. which really is what religion ought to do. Custer is the rabbi we all wish we had, and not only because he's a supreme being who is also ridiculously good-looking and really handy with a gun. He's the preacher who understands that it's not enough to be told what to do, that you have to feel it in your heart, and that to feel it in your heart, you need to be surrounded by people who love you and accept you, even if you've done very regrettable things. He's the man of God who knows that it's not enough to follow halacha or the law, you also need to follow Agada, the essence of our spiritual thriving, the reason we want to believe. Few of us are blessed with such a shepherd and shul. 
but all of us ought to be grateful we can find these sparks of the divine in preacher. Amen. You get to Thank amen. you, Seth Rogen. This is what's great on the show. You get to amen yourself. It's a nice thing. You're in a sacker stream. And you're, this is the ecumenical <laughs> there, there, there are two crosses here that I uh, nod at, as I say. I'm, I'm fine. If, there, if this turns into the strain and there's, you know, vampires out there. Oh, we're surviving. We, we're, yeah. yeah we're, we can like, yeah. We're, we're the fine here. people we'll, in the we'll world. Be, we'll be fine. We have our pizza flavored snacks <laughs> and our whiskey. We're, we go forever. Yeah, but I mean, don't... Uh, you feel it. Feeling that's so much of religion. You know, it's sort of like, come here, do this. And you're like, no. This is Mockingbird's raison d'etre. I know. I once heard Paul Zoll, who's our founder's um, father, who's a wonderful man and a person I, I consider a real mentor and friend in faith. And But I heard him give an explanation of the Reformation once. He's old Episcopal rector. He's, at the time, you know, he's, um, you know, he's like nearing retirement and he's got like a cassock and clergy tabs, like a... And he's giving this adult ed talk. And he says, you know, the Reformation was founded because there were some guys, and they were guys, young guys, who felt like they couldn't be themselves. The religious cultural establishment had an external constraint. And freedom is when, like, you know, it's the Augustine prayer. God, command what you will, but give me the grace to will what mm-hmm. you command. Because, it, it, like, when I will the good, uh, when there's not a tension between is and ought, is when we feel free. This is Jeremiah, right, saying that there'll come a new covenant where the... Mm-hmm. The Torah will be written in your hearts. You won't need you. You know, there's you won't need this exterior thing because, and that's where real freedom comes when it's spontaneous. When, when you when you don't like when feeling for the good and the true and the beautiful isn't slavish. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I think that that's this is so. So I like this so much, and 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 this is something that I'm still grappling with. I'm still learning. And here's one example. I said with my friend Menachem, who's kind of my um, kind of my Sherpa. <laughs> Into into you know the 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 uh, say more rocky terrains of of faith. Um, Malcolm's religious, and he's asking me some question about whether or not I say the blessing over food. And I say to him, "Okay, look, um, I, I don't want to be rude, but I I do I do like the bacon. I eat the bacon more often than I can begin to tell you. Sometimes I eat the bacon three times a day. Those are good days. Those are also weekdays." Uh, because I really like the bacon, and I'm not going to sit there and say the bracha when I when I eat this this thing. And he sort of gets pensive for a second. Uh, he looks like a yeshivish Mike Tyson, if you could imagine that. Imagine a, a white religious Jewish Mike Tyson who spent his life studying Torah. Uh, hey, same, can we, if, if there is an apocalypse, can we call him to get over here before the? Oh no, he will be here. Yeah. He, he's because that's everywhere. that would round out a, a trio. We would be the one. We'd be the unholy trinity. Yeah. And he says something like, "Look." When you eat the bacon, right, uh, you do it with intent. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't just shove it on your mouth. You know, you do it with a certain kind of contemplation of the enjoyment that you get from this thing, right? You do it with a mindfulness towards what it is that you eat and what it is that you do when you eat what you eat. And I say yes to all these things. I said, well, you know, just go ahead and say the blessing. You know, that's a thousand times more important than whether or not you have passed uh, or, or, or transgressed against some law, even though, mind you, Pretty major law, you know, no, no, no minor stuff. Uh, but it's really the feeling of, you know, the Torah in your heart and, and, and the idea that you actually grapple with it, you actually think about it. That makes you, that makes you ready. Whether or not you're perfect, you're not. Y- you guys are way better at, at that, at parsing out imperfections than we are, right? Hmm. Because you have grace and that's an amazing, beautiful thing that we don't have. Uh, but, 
but the point is there and, and I like it. But when you say you don't have it though, I mean, I, I feel like that's, um, you know, my favorite, uh, wedding sermon. I have one, I, well, I have several I preach, but I shouldn't say this because to the couples that might be listening to this where I've preached the same one, but there you go. I'm screwed. Cause I'm also a pastor <laughs> in my day job. I'm actually a, a practicing pastor. Um, it's Genesis 29, right? Because Jacob, you know, marries, you know, it's, it, his betrothed is Rachel and, you know, Laban's like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to okay, Just come on. Come on. It's, it'll Don't be okay. Okay. Yeah. Work a few. It's great. And then he, he wakes up and it's Leah. And the people first ever think, how could this happen? I'm like, well, lots of booze, like most wedding receptions, without electricity and a veiled kind of thing. I mean, think Burke-ish, like you're veiled, you're... You know, you could wake up with anybody. Like you've never fucked your wife's sister at your wedding. Exactly. You know, who hasn't done that? <laughs> who hasn't? Uh, but, you know... For he, the record, honey, I never did. Me neither. Um, but he he's patient and keeps Leah, who... The, the Hebrew's weird, but it could be like, with beautiful eyes, weak eyes, something. I mean, the Hebrew's really ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But then he works... You know, I think another week for Rachel, but then he has to stay, you know, he's now he's got two wives, which is, that was, but what's interesting is my sermon is usually, you may, this is every marriage. Cause at some point you wake up and you go, this isn't who I married. I married the guy that held the door or the gal that used to put Victoria's secret lingerie and thigh highs on for her date. I love now, that. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. All oh, wow. of, all of virtually all of Israel's pro- big prophets, priests and Kings come from Leah's womb not Rachel's. They come from the one, the shadow side. So like, that's an incredibly gracious story. And, and also if we want to just Christian, if, if go the, the, the uh, empire strikes back or whatever, I don't know. That's <laughs> that sounds sort of like, but like Jesus comes from the womb of Leah, not Rachel. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes like, I think that whole story, the whole story of, of the building of, of Israel's, you know, offices of redemption are ones in which, Grace was the doorway. I absolutely love that. Well, there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, if anyone invite <laughs> if me anyone to show, I'll, come, me. I'll, come, I'll come give that on a Shabbat. I don't work hardly any Saturdays. You know what they don't tell you? It's, it's, <laughs> You're free Friday nights. You know what they don't tell you in seminary, though? <laughs> they should just have to say, think about this. You're going to work a hell of a lot of Sundays. Yeah. I, I just want to get back. I, I absolutely love everything you said. What I meant about Grace is sort of like, so I'm 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 obsessed with Augustine. Uh, I wanted to name my my boy Augustine, and my wife was like, "No, that's just too weird." Well, the kid would conquer the Augustine yeah. Leibowitz. Like, Here he is. Yeah. Like while well, well, he cured cancer, Saints. he cured, cured cancer at like 28. <laughs> he wrote some commentaries on Torah, like uh, Albert Schweitzer. He got bored with that. He moved like, back, yeah, moved, and now he's in a and now he's in a ska band. You know, but 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 this concept really of of you of like ska too, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I love the horns. I love you know, the horns. I love the horns. Yeah, I do. It's just too 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 good. Too happy to resist. Uh, but if we were having uh, a theological draft, which maybe we should, and we traded things, you know, ideas for one another, uh, I, I would, I would trade a bunch of what we do for this one idea. Uh, the notion that, you know, you guys received this, this ultimate gift, the notion that it frees you from every, you know, I, this is the whole like Pelagian controversy thing about which yeah. I think more than a Jew should, but like the note that you're not just, it's every man for himself. Uh, the notion that there is a, 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 a vision of perfection that forgives you 
and releases you in advance from being perfect. Um, that's mind blowing to me. I love that. Uh, with us, it's much more, you know, hey, <laughs> just work at it. Do your best. It'll be fine. It's a, it's a kind of much more sort of severe, uh, earthly type of vision that I, I struggle with. Yeah, I don't think that that is, I think that's where every tradition, Carl Barth says that like all religions, unbelief, including and especially Christian religion, mm-hmm. because you like it, it. I feel like religiosity is what we do. It's Tower of Babel stuff, right? Let's mm-hmm. make a name for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Let's come in. It's what we do in the absence of revelation. Like, you know, sometimes God yeah, graces yeah. us with, you know, revealing himself in religious observance, but that's something you kind of can't control. It's why you like, you open a passage of Torah or the new Testament and one day, it blows you away. And the next day it's, it's not a, it's not a talisman or a magical mantra. You can, I guess like rub and like kind of get exactly right. This is why, you know, I, what, one of the most kind of beautiful, I think it was, it was definitely Chesterton GK Chesterton. I think it was in the, in, in the, in the great Jesus book in the everlasting man in which he, he basically says, you know, you want doubt, speak to someone who's faithful, you know, speak to someone who really takes this seriously because it doesn't come out of, as you said, it doesn't come out of revelation. If you had a revelation, it would be easy. It, it comes out of, of struggling. It comes out of wrestling. Uh, do you want to really know the extent of a person who feels that doubt every day? Talk, talk to a religious person. And, and this is what drives me absolutely crazy when I have these conversations with, with so many, so many of, 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 you know, my colleagues who I love and respect for sort of committed, uh, atheists and, or, uh, you know, agnostics who, who kind of look at me askance, be like, well, you're a serious person. How could you, how could you believe any of this nonsense? What is it that you think we do? What is it that you imagine we are about? Do you think we read the book back? Oh yeah, no, that's not problematic at all that, you know, Moses just raised his arm and the sea, you know, tore itself in half. Well, we're cool with that. Do you think we don't ask questions? You think we don't grapple and struggle with meanings? Like, really? That's just inconceivable to me. This is the most unpopular view in all of... This is the one thing that as a Jew, when you say people like, how dare he, that is just so intolerant. I don't think you could be a real Jew without believing in God. I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of people who buy this sort of like, but we're cultural Jews, you know, our, our, our mother's vagina was Jewish, so we're Jewish too, and we love Seinfeld, and we eat a lot of bagels. That's great. Great for you. You know, hang out. That's cool. I, I'm not telling you not to, but but it's a religion that we're doing here. You know, we, we have belief. We have faith. We take it really seriously. Uh, it's a conversation I have with Mark about every week. Uh, we still haven't resolved it. I suspect we never will. Well, I would come... To that conversation. Would um, you be the referee? I, I would totally, I, I would, if I could be your Gentile of the week, I would like, be. Unfair intervention. I, I would be, I would like, I don't even have a bucket list. I might create it for that. Okay, we're done. You are our Gentile of the week. Oh, we'll just. Do you have that kind of authority? You, you, you really have that kind I of authority? I have that kind of authority. Invested in me. I think one of the Achilles heels of christianity sometimes is something we can learn from judaism you guys joked about this when you asked mark in an episode if he believed in god and he was kind of like maybe sometimes i don't know and (laughs) but then you guys joked about for an evangelical what is it it's like if you say i'm not sure i believe and then get hit by a bus like is it five second rule like what but so i feel like on one level what you're saying is in the current state of judaism believing 
and belonging are too far are, are too far apart. Like they're almost disconnected. Like you don't. It doesn't matter what you believe. You belong. You're kind of you. I feel like in certain expressions of Christianity, believing and belonging are too closely connected. In the sense of like, I I, I probably would be a true believer if in any tradition. Like, and that's not to denote the work of the spirit in my own coming to faith. But like it, that's like eight to 10% of people psychologically. And maybe the other eight to 10% on the other extreme are people that they'd be in the tradition, but you know, minimalist, whatever. And then most people are the 80, the 80% where some seasons it's more faith and fear and doubt. Other times it's more anxiety. Fear, doubt. Like, and I feel like what, what especially more quote unquote, conservative forms of Christianity. I'm not talking about their politics. I'm talking about like, Hey, how much of the apostles creed do you believe? And, and the folks that tend to believe most or all of it tend to pitch the whole thing for the temperament of the 8% right. that could sign off and everything. And I think in Judaism at its best, and you're saying maybe it's in an excess right now, but at some of its best, it allows that you can, you can have seasons where you're full of doubt and anxiety and, and even frustration with all things theological. And yet you could still be part of the tradition. Well, yeah. Well, okay. Let's, let's, let's differentiate. I, I, I'm a Jew. It's my, my birthright to tell a story. I'm, I'm going to tell my favorite Jew story ever. So there, there are two rabbis uh, and they're sitting in there arguing about this, this paragraph from the, from the Torah. Uh, what does it mean? And one rabbi says, you know, if I'm right, um, let this tree over here uh, get up and start dancing. And as soon as he finishes saying it, the tree gets up and starts dancing. And the second rabbi says, so? That's not proof of anything. That doesn't mean you're right. It's just a dancing tree. And the first rabbi says, okay, if my interpretation of this Torah verse is correct, see this well over there? Let's this, let this well gush forth with colorful water. And as soon as he's done talking, the well just explodes with like this rainbow colored water, you know, stream. And the second rabbi says, so that's not proof of anything. It's just a well. And the first rabbi frustrated says, okay, if my interpretation of this verse in the Torah is right, let God himself come down from heaven and say so. And God appears. He says, yes, no, your interpretation is correct, my son. And the second rabbi looks in and says, excuse me, uh, your word may mean something in heaven, but this is earth. This is for us to decide who's right. And then the story ends that a week later, God uh, met the prophet Elijah and, and said, you know, uh, delightfully with a big smile, um, I've met my children and they have bested me. Uh, this is kind of what I love most about this faith. There really is a feeling, I mean, not even the Almighty has any sort of real particular preference in, in, in what I'm saying. But, but the thing that I was getting at with, with this affiliation thing, you know, I feel most of the time when you meet someone and he tells you, Hey, I'm a Christian. You know exactly where that per- you don't know exactly where that person's But, if but you they, know that there's a commitment. If they right? self identify, like I, that's what I'm saying. When, when I- I do think that it's nice to have the, the courage to go out there and say, Hey, look, it's, it's faith. We're not going to cut it, uh, down and, and scrub it off so that it looks really, really nice and it's not offensive in a cocktail party. There are things we believe in. And I think with Jews where you get this really most of the time is chosenness. You know, this is our, the closest we have to the whole Jesus thing. Which you, you've written a book on. I have. And I'm obsessed Co-authored with, this with, um, with Todd Gitlin. Yeah. Who doesn't believe in this concept. But to me, if you don't, 
what's the point of the whole religion? Yeah. You know, that's kind of the basis of it. It's kind of at the crux of the entire thing. If you, you could be uncomfortable with it as the people who heard it from God were uncomfortable with it. God had to reveal himself to Abraham five freaking times just to convince one man that he was actually chosen. It's a difficult concept. I know I get it. Grapple with it, but don't say like, Oh no, no, we're all the same. Well, you know, if that's the case, then why are you here? For what? Then there's so many other affiliations that are so freaking better. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think, so first I heard Tim Keller, who's a mm-hmm. great, one of the, one of the best, I was going to say Protestant preachers, but Christian preachers week to week, like if you can stand a 35 minute sermon, which many evangelicals can, I mean, that's the, I mean, he's unbelievable, but he said, I went a sermon once, he said, you know, chosen doesn't mean choice. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we're not the choice cut of meat, we're just chosen. Think, think about how strange the story is, right? So here's 600,000 unwashed nomads, right? and they're standing at the foothills of the mound. This is the pinnacle of the biblical drama, right? This is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is, like, the big reveal in the end of Act 2 of the movie. This is it. This is the money shot. And God comes out, and here's what he says. You will be unto me, uh, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Good night, everyone. This is in a book that saw it fit to dedicate hundreds of pages to what the freaking you should do if your ox gores another man's ox, right? There was an answer for that, and all you tell us about chosenness is the kingdom of peace, holy nation? You imagine those guys standing at the foothill of a mount saying, uh, okay, a couple of questions out. First of all, why us? Second of all, what were we chosen for? Third of all, um, are kids automatically chosen after us? Can you get unchosen? What are the freaking footprints, uh, you know, a fine print of, of this thing, right? I, I, this is a really big contract you're getting us to sign. What do you mean? That's a normal human reaction. That's how Abraham reacted. That's how every sane person in the history of humankind would have reacted. And, and this book that is so, so, so dense with, with, a lot of other really minutia doesn't say. And it leads you with this incredible revelation, which is to have been chosen means spending the rest of eternity wondering what it means to have been chosen. Mm. It means to constantly live in self-doubt and self-questioning. It means to constantly come up with your own answers uh, to to what this means. And, and, and this is where I do... Uh, this brings us back to grace. This is where I do really envy Christianity because there's to me something, uh, truly magnificent about having, having that example, right? Of, of looking at that gift you were given at, at the form, at the savior and saying that, you know, do that, uh, which you'll never be able to do. Aspire to that. Come as close as you can to that. Walk in his light. Uh, it's, it's darker where we are. It's grimmer where we are. Uh, it's, it's more struggle where we are, uh, which explains, I think, how, how we've kind of, kind of rolled down the centuries with a very particular outlook. Uh, I, I've come to like it a great deal and embrace it and respect it. And I think in some ways really kind of try to embody it. Uh, but I, but I do see the, uh, but I do see the alternative as quite appealing. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, no, it does. I, and I think a lot of people I know that are firmly rooted in the Christian tradition and sometimes rooted in the more theologically robust end of it don't understand grace. I mean, because you, you, I think this is just a human thing. 
Right. But but here's the thing. I don't feel 100%. I'll put it like this. When I say, you know, I thank you. And, and this is, I'm being super personal here. This is the first time I've ever shared it with anyone. Right here. My, my exclusive, phrase, exclusive. 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 If we were Fox News, we'd cut, we'd cut away right now because they do good television. Willie LC. We'll be back. It either took this, uh, this church or this rye whiskey. I think I'm going to say it, but, but I say, you know, thank you, Father, for your grace, uh, which is ironic because you know, the whole grace obsession again. Uh, but the truth is I don't really feel, I, I, I don't really feel he's listening. And I say this not as a kind of scorn trial. I say this having been raised so thoroughly within Jewish theological tradition, not to expect that he would be to expect that, 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 that my relationship is always with the ultimate un- unknowable, always with the ultimate all knowing, always with the ultimate unpresent. And and there's always something that strikes me about this notion of of grace that says, well, you're 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 one step closer, you know. Mm. There's there's one there's one less obstacle in your way. There's 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 a man. There's 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 a God. There's something that you could look at and feel. Uh, and and there's the act of sacrifice, right? Which which makes it personal. Uh, I know it's a very kind of thwarted interpretation of what grace is about, but it's Not, uh, it always struck me as like, wow. Yeah, because when I say, thank you, Father, for your grace, uh, I say believing with all my heart and might and every fiber of my being that he's there, but also believing just as equally that by design, he's not listening. When you've talked about Christianity on the podcast, uh, I've just... I thought, man, this guy gets the thing like, and he gets it from a place that it's probably not the easiest to get it. I, I really, I don't think you could, I don't think you could pay me a higher compliment uh, because this is something that I think about like a lot. This is, this is something that's fundamental because I think when, when, when you really start taking faith seriously, then you start having these, um, you know, you start doing this field survey of what, you know, what's, what's out there. And I have this, not just respect, but I actually have like a real love, uh, for it, uh, as, as deeply rooted as I am, uh, in my faith and my tradition. Uh, when you see something that is so glorious, it could be like, man, that's, I envy that a little bit. Uh, and and I think that's actually a really good basis for for a real ecumenical relationship. It shouldn't just be like, well, I respect your differences, but <laughs> am I glad that I don't have to go through this? It should be like, wow, I can I can imagine that, right? It's it's the imagination part. It's just like I could totally see myself as that. Have you ever preached a sermon? I've I've spoken in shuls, but I I take the uh, I take the preaching duties very seriously. I, I can't say that I have. I've spoken about Leonard Cohen in Shul, and he is. Which you have a book for our listeners, uh, which I do, and and I consider him to be one of the one of the greatest teachers, uh, and and my rabbi uh, of of this era. He's a he's a popular singer songwriter. For those of you not familiar, he's a guy who wrote the song Hallelujah, which tells you everything you need to know. And and just this line that he has uh, that is, I think, uh, sort of basically the pinnacle of wisdom as far as I'm concerned. That says. Ring the bells that still could ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack 
a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Well, uh, you have to go. You've told me like we're past your time. Um, I don't want to. Well, I, you know, I, I want to stay here. You can, Don't we could talk crazy. for a few more minutes. Sanctuary. It's a, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, hold on to the altar. You know, I'm going to just say that, um, Leo and I might talk for a few more minutes, uh, but this is where the, um, and you're, you, you know, you may or may not get this on give and take the, where the uncut interviews go like Chris Tippett's, but, um, Leo, thank you. I mean, this has been really great. And would you come back like soon, maybe I'm even come back like every week? This has been amazing. I like that. Whatever you want. Can you, that's, yeah, your lips to God's ears. And also just like, um, if you could tell your Jewish friends, there's a little group of people. Attention Jews. Attention Jews. The Christians on Mockingbird these, are calling you. These are Christians. Obey. Are, <laughs> we're not into obey. No, that would make our, we would be so nervous about that. We'd be so like nervous. I think we should have like an like the ecumenical apocalypse should actually be a podcast. You know, the more yeah. I think about it, we could do this. something that we do. All right, here we are once again. It's Friday. It's that time. It's mocking cast time, and we've got a little bit of a different setup today. Actually, I have live in studio the animating force of the zeitgeist here in the Langhorn Nest of Mockingbird World. David Zoll, what's going on, DZ? Well, do you think I'm kind of for once animating the studio? You are. It's like I feel like if you if it was any more animated, I would become Bugs Bunny. I would just <laughs> or maybe Woody Woodpecker. Well, someone's got to animate things, and you know sometimes that that person is me. And DZ, let me say, uh, it, first off, the podcast did not uh, the, the the time space continuum did not rip with the ecumenical apocalypse of me and Leal, but like Leal, you are disappearing, bro. Oh well, thank you. I, I well yeah June reduction that's what I call it my June reduction every year you sound like a salad dressing yeah. <laughs> and s- sitting in for Sarah Condon Leslie Hall back once again as our guest host from Ohio thanks for having me back Scott anytime thanks for being willing to do this getting up early to just talk with us about things in the world as we see them it's a gracious thing for you to do for us mm. things yeah it's no big deal it sounds the best way to spend my day at 7 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> well, you're a barista too, right? So you're used to probably some early shifts. Oh yeah. I've, uh, I've, I would have done a lot of things by now if I was working. It would have been a lot, of es- a lot of espresso shots and a lot of uh, getting the shop set up. Well, we're glad that you're helping to set up our little shop and <laughs> connecting with our listeners and friends out there. So first off, let's talk social media, David. This comes to us, Hat Tip New Yorker. Yeah, the New Yorker uh, put up pretty funny one of their shouts and murmurs. It's called uh, uh, like an open letter from your horrible Facebook friends. Sort of it, the 
Matt, uh, the writer, compiled sort of all of the worst tendencies uh, that, that all, all the basically all the Facebook friends that you would want to hide, both the both the annoying ones, the political ones, the sort of self-aggrandizing ones. Uh, my favorite little paragraph is, um, you know, they're writing to you, sort of uh, to talk to you about what what you need to really take them seriously, and how it's kind of this sincere letter. What we're trying to say is that we are more than what we post on Facebook with seemingly zero understanding of grammar boundaries or tone we have no idea what bitcoins are we hate that they don't play real music on the radio anymore and we want to read local news stories about dogs is that so awful so meet us halfway you never accepted our invitations to play candy crush you never took the personality quizzes we shared on your wall and you never participated in the ice bucket challenge it raised a lot of money and more important awareness Look, sorry, we don't want to sound aggressive. We're just a little grumpy because of all the CrossFit we've been doing. <laughs> did you guys do the ice bucket challenge? I did not. No, I did Neither not. Did I. I was I was invited and said no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have nothing against the ice bucket challenge. I just didn't do it. I was afraid to have a heart attack. Yeah. Wow, that's really intense. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It could like your body's not meant to just like switch all that. It's so so extreme. That and CrossFit, everything is so like meta and epic and like, you know, like, like I just like, you know, how about the lukewarm bucket challenge? <laughs> <laughs> the tepid water challenge. Yeah. Just, it's it just like they, they drizzle some, some sort of, uh, room temperature water on top of your head. That's all of a sudden you're baptized. I don't like Candy Crush or Farmville. I don't like the ice bucket. And I don't like CrossFit. Leslie, where are you on all those things? Uh, probably the same. I try to think of it, like any annoying Facebook tendency that I have. I share too many articles about music that probably no one cares about. That probably gets annoying. But about Mockingbird articles, right? That's, that's yeah, I share Mockingbird ask. articles yeah. and that's it. <laughs> That's like when they asked the presidential candidates in 2008, like, what's their Democratic candidates, what's their weakness? And, like, Obama went first. He said, well, I'm not, I have really bad organizational skills. And, like, my staff says, like, don't put paper in his hand right until, you know, until the moment I'm going to the floor. And John Edwards is like, I just obsessive on my tireless commitment to the poor. And Hillary Clinton's like, <laughs> it's just my obsessive work ethic for the country. And Obama later is like, I mean, I thought I should have said, like, I love walking ladies across the street. Oh, ladies. And, you know, sometimes I get late to the Senate floor. I, get, I, I sometimes post really smart music articles that people read because they're cultural Philistines and they're on Farmville. Oh man, I'm I'm a hipster barista. What can I say? I'll just live into my identity. So do you know that CrossFit also, by the way, causes rhabdomyosis, which no one should get, except like one in a ten thousand Navy SEALs in training or a freak Olympic athlete. It's actually a condition where your muscles get so fatigued that they break and the lactic acid, something happens and they, and they don't heal quite right because the muscle tissue doesn't scar the kind way. So there's these little cartoon pictures, Robdo the clown, where it's like a clown and it causes kidney problems, right? So he's in a kidney dialysis thing and he's a clown that's like jacked up and Robdo the clown. And this is a normal thing in CrossFit. Huh. That's intense. Yeah. You know, you've, uh, you know, you've entered a slightly extremist world when that's the, the, <laughs> That's the caution. I, uh, this is kind of funny because uh, we talked about CrossFit. Uh, I talked about it in California a couple weeks ago, and then there's another article about the theology of CrossFit. And you know, maybe CrossFit's getting too raw of a deal here. I, I just see it as uh, it, it's helpful in terms of looking at the pop popular religiosity as well as you know the way that uh, we seek out those things, Americans especially, that are the closest approximation of like the 
the most miserable forms of manual labor because our freedom is so oppressive to us. It's like um, Opus Dei, like in Da Vinci Code with the self-flagellation stuff. It's like a form of medieval spirituality, man. You're just like, mm. by the way, can I just say my wife and I, a couple years ago, we were sitting in a bar and we were talking about personality tests. And this is when there were more of them. It was just when they were coming on, like, which Soprano character are you? You know, which Lion King character are you? Like, which form of mite or insect are you? Like, you know, if, like, if you were a bacterial uh, mutation, which would you be? So I was like, what if we had one, like, we created one, like, which STD are you? And so I posted as, like, as if I just took it and without a link because it didn't exist. But I said, which STD are you? I got chlamydia. Easy to catch and treat, but devastating when ignored. <laughs> That's about right. That's yeah. about right. That's me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I'm needy. I need attention. Um, but it's very, it's very interesting, right? Because Miroslav Wolf, who will be on our show next week, actually interviewed him uh, this week in New Haven, which is a lovely town. Uh, he says that, you know, the, what the first thing we do, like in our own moments of like, non like in our own moments of judgments we exclude ourselves uh from the from the table of sinners and remove our the other from the fellowship of humanity and so we've all just done that right now with all the other people that uh, all those all those other <laughs> other uh facebook bores all the people that are like judgmental or that we um that are annoying unlike us yeah. I'm annoying as everybody else's, I'm sure. Next up, we have, moving on, we have a couple pieces. Uh, one comes to us, where's the first one? Celebrity, David. That one's also from The New Yorker. And um, really interesting thing about how uh, celebrities have kind of come to be known for their organizational and work ethic, organizational skills and work ethic, as well as sort of whatever it is they're talented at. And uh, this, this, especially when it comes to female celebrities, that he it, it starts as a riff on Kim Kardashian, who's not only this sort of ex- exhibitionistic, uh, famous for being famous person. But on the show, I guess she does talk a lot about what she needs to get done, that she's very, very uh, hardworking and extremely, you know, um, conscientious of that sort of thing. But then he, he brings in Amy Schumer uh, and then uh, talks about Mindy Kaling and um, Tina Fey, who uh, he sees as responsible for, this is Nathan Heller writing, for putting career back near the center of their sitcoms. It's like, as opposed to Seinfeld or Friends or Frasier, where no one was ever working, everything took place. George got fired a lot. George got fired a lot. Yes, <laughs> that's, that is true. And you slept with a cleaning. Is that sort of thing frowned upon here? Because my old office, that, that went on all was the time. Was that wrong? <laughs> well, they, uh, this is pretty interesting because he sees it as, uh, you know, um, indicative of the larger swing toward worshiping productivity. And this is, he says, celebrities are uh, regularly cast as superhuman versions of normal people. And upper middle class uh, 
normal is currently piled high with work. Um, and then a female celebrity for years was rooted in luxury and beauty culture. Slowly it is moving toward a work and achievement culture. And such re-narrativization requires active reinforcement in the public eye. So yet another kind of example of the cult of productivity taking over. You know, there, there are certain ways in which these are great strides, but uh, then you're dealing with a new form of, um, you know, uh, worship, which is that of the, we worship the career. Yeah, it, it, it's it is like I never thought of Amy Schumer. I guess her show though she does is very career oriented, right? Well, I think she's also like a, it's very you're very aware of how hard she's working that she's she's doing everything, uh, you know. And and this is somehow applies more to I think because female celebrity culture was more based in beauty and things like this. But you know, uh, this swing towards productivity and lionizing the career. I mean. Look at us here at 6 a.m. Uh, recording a podcast. I mean, uh, we are not exempt. But this article, is, I thought, uh, hits the nail on the head. By the way, Amy Schumer's HBO special is hilarious. And she says, you know, I'm known as a sex comic um, because I talk about sexuality. But meanwhile, uh, if a guy, a guy could just whip his genitals out on the stage and all the critics would go, oh, he's so smart. <laughs> he's so crafty. You know, so there's a little bit of sexism probably in comedy. Let's see, like, you, uh, we're, like, you're a little younger than both of us. Like, do you, do you see the productivity cult, uh, like, is it outside of the purview of these curmudgeons? No, I mean, I feel like I've grown up in this productivity cult. Like, in high school, it was all about, okay, how many clubs can you be in and how can you build your resume to be, um, the most, um, kind of available to, get college scholarships and get into the best schools. And now it's okay. I've even seen it run to like a social kind of standpoint of like how many different friends can you meet up with in a week and how many different times can you go out and do these social kind of events? Not to mention like, okay, how hard are you working at your job? It's kind of a constant, are you doing enough to kind of gain worth for yourself? Yeah. Are you doing enough? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be honest. Be honest. No, um, I th- uh, I don't know. Probably not. I, she is. Uh, she is up. You are up at uh, six o'clock. So yeah, and you're chipper. You you get your uh, your gold star for today. Yay. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. Yeah, two gold stars. What do you say? Two gold stars. I wish we had little mockingbird stick, gold mockingbird stickers. You could just stop. put a bird on it, Scott. Put yeah. it on it. <laughs> put a bird on it. Put a bird. Yeah, I love Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he's become a really like fun and interesting interviewer. He was on Jamie Foxx's radio show the other day, and Jamie Foxx was like, "What if I told you Oprah was a white man? You're the Oprah of the internet." Uh, but and he does. I mean, he started with a lot of life hack stuff, right? He was one of the first guys that really was popularizing that, and and now has like turned into this interview. He got kind of burnt out in writing, and now. He just interviews high performers like Seth Rogen, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a, a hospice doctor that like analyzes death. Like, uh, you know, so I mean, I find that really interesting, especially someone who does more and more interviews. I, I really, but Seth Rogen, who's one of the great entrepreneurs said, you know, Tim, I think like you started with this life hacking thing. And now are you saying to people now that you have more power and flexibility or what? Cause everybody has some degree of power in their, in their life. Like, what do you do with it? Is that where we're going? And Tim Ferriss said, yeah, kind of, but like, I, I haven't really gotten that out of his show much so that's one of the things that like it's so interesting about it is like uh productivity stuff is a great servant lousy master yeah and i feel like somehow and, and again it's a podcast i love so i can't say enough good about it but there is something like that that rings hollow when we're just talking about 
productivity for productivity's sake yeah. or the cult of excellence. Yeah, I mean when you do that four hour work week stuff and, and I've actually this is one of those rare books I've I've read because I, I you know the, the the diet I'm following, for example, is is all Tim Ferriss stuff. But um I uh, I don't think people actually want to work four hours a week. I think they want to work a lot more than that. I think if you have you know if you're working if you have 36 hours of free time, I think that's terrifying to people in our current uh, climate. It's terrifying to me. Uh, so uh, that that's it, it, it. You can even put aside the sort of why are you you know uh, optimizing yourself so much, but um but, but even once you have, uh, it's sort of unquestioned that you need to. But then once you have, it's like well what then? Well I'm I'm creating all this other time so I can like work out and and uh, ponder the mysteries of the universe. I mean, I don't think that 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 is what people actually want. I think we want to be distracted from ourselves. As, as Nietzsche says, the uh, man is in uh, uh, flight from himself. I think it's true. He also mm-hmm. says the most important thing one can develop in themselves is a sense of style. Well, that, I think you're, we, the, the three of us are clearly uh, uh, cases in point. Disciples of him, <laughs> even if unwittingly. So, all right, let's stop the podcast. Just work out and zen. Mm. No, just kidding. Let's work on, press on to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. This is from The Guardian, right, David? Yeah. The Guardian uh, reported on Gladwell's got a new podcast that he just started, and they, they talk about it. It's called Revisionist History. And the first episode is, 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 um, it's where he does his Gladwell thing, basically. He's, he's Malcolm Gladwell on the radio and, uh, kind of getting people to look with fresh eyes at things that they've always known about. But I mean, the, the you're the one who told me about this, Scott. What, what, tell us about that first episode. Oh, David, you flatter me. Go on. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's, a, it is really cool because it's like an audio book. It's, it's like a sort of, um, you know, NPR narrative production, but with some essay kind of, it's brilliant. And the first episode, he it's called The Lady Vanishes. And he, he's in St. James Palace, and he's talking to this really eccentric uh, art expert about this paying the roll call, which is like British soldiers in the Crimean War. And it's really, it, it took England by storm. He, he said it, people just like flocked to see it. And the Queen of England wound up buying it and displaying it in the palace. And he says, you know, the only contemporary thing I think is like people camped out for Beyonce. I mean, this was He's like, this was the main form of media back then, like without, you know, other forms of media outlets. But he was saying that this unknown female artist, Elizabeth Thompson Butler, made this breakthrough in exclusively male world. I mean, the Royal Academy of Art, which controlled the art scene, was all male. And then next year, she did another painting, which was the, the British military helped her stage it. They were, she was, she became so prominent. And they put that, they had to admit it into the academy, but they put it like in the worst place. And then they decided we can't have women admitted to the academy because at the reception, men are always escorted in by a lady. And how, what would a woman do? You know, <laughs> like it's, so it's sort of like people say, you know, can Elizabeth Warren be Hillary's running mate? Well, I mean, you can't put two people of the same gender on the ticket. That never happens. <laughs> But so that, so basically he talks about this concept of moral leniency, how, how, like he uses other examples, how basically, uh, in Nazi Germany, they could love this Jewish poet Berthold Auerbach and then do all these horrible things to the Jews because, oh, well, we love this poet though. Or uh, after the Australian prime minister Elizabeth or after, um, Julia Gillard was, uh, one, uh, in Australia, misogyny went up and then all these awful comments were made. So. It's sort of like the idea that, oh, he's poking at the idea, if you do good, if you want to be good, do good. Actually, oftentimes, the concept of moral license is after you make a decision that people see as virtuous, you'll actually 
oftentimes are tempted to actually slap, be a worse person because, oh, look, I did this virtuous thing. It's so, I mean, so true. I, you can't help but think about uh, preachers or those who are in church work who have spent Sunday morning uh, doing something, you know, at, at its best, which is very beautiful and gracious and full of love. And then Sunday afternoon, you're getting into it, uh, being extremely impatient with their children or with their spouse or um, it, it's, it's moral licensing, you know, that, that uh, is, is doing good a way to be good or is it, I think, what does he say? I, I love this, this question here. Um, uh, when does uh, doing good lead to doing bad, and when does doing good lead to doing more good? I mean, we, the the truth is, a lot of times our good acts, as I mean, you're into very Lutheran territory here, I think, but that's um. Uh, that that just simply allows our self justification to work faster. It gives us something to latch onto, and then our our self centeredness can kind of take center stage. It's 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 a really uh, convenient and uh, unfortunate. So yeah, I feel like so often we change our profile pictures to be in solidarity with something that happens in the world, but then choose to do nothing about it, and we are justified in that because like, oh no, look at this thing that I did publicly, or we. Um, do so many things in like social media forms uh, on Twitter or like we re- gave them a retweet. So we're okay to do whatever we want now. Um, yeah. And yeah, I feel like that's almost, I wonder if like social media has just kind of perpetuated this moral licensing kind of thing. Of yeah. Just, like, yeah. I, I, I think, uh, I think you're totally onto something. Cause you know, I, I can't help but think about all these think pieces about cl- political correctness, some of which we've published where, uh, you know, you have people on social media and, you know, uh, as you say, just making sure that they're uh, aligned with the, uh, with the, the, you know, in justice and, uh, brave, uh, displays of social virtue. And they're, they're signifying constantly or signaling. I think that's the word. You're just signaling all the time that you are this kind of person in that kind of way. And, and it actually, um, it gives you the, uh, justification or the excuse to then turn around and be extremely, um, uh, you know, oppressive towards anyone that disagrees with you. And that we, we see this all the time because you're so convinced that you're doing the right thing or that you're just, uh, you know, on the side of the angels that then you turn around to those, uh, and, and you act in the same exact way that you're accusing them of acting. It's a moral licensing. I see it everywhere. I think it's a, it sounds like a brilliant, brilliant first episode of that podcast. Like I made you coffee this morning. You're staying at my house and I'm going to be a jerk to everyone else for the rest of the day. Uh, because <laughs> now, yeah, it's funny because if, I mean, it, and brought in 30 seconds, I mean, if you think about the broad outline of moral philosophy, like there's a couple of different ways to think about morality. One is kind of consequences, right? Like I, I act so that the most good happens for the most people or the least harm. Another is kind of commitments. Like I act, uh, you know, Immanuel Kant, sort of, you know, the universal law that, you know, I should do this, this thing no matter where it is. I could legislate in the universe. And then the last one is sort of like character. Like morality is about the kind of person, story, or living, mm-hmm. which you see it in Aristotle. You kind of even see it in Nietzsche. So the, the character people, uh, here's a little bit of empirical evidence, <laughs> which in psychological studies, Gladwell cites, it looks like character ethics uh, work in the inverse of the way they're intended, at least a lot of the time. Huh. So moving on 
to Moral Philosophy and Malcolm from Moral Philosophy and Malcolm Gladwell on to a beautiful piece that comes to us from the where's this from, David? This is from uh, Ask Polly. This is our 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 now friend, I, I might even venture to say. Or you just interviewed fond her. Fond colleague, uh, Heather Haverleski, writing for New York Magazine. Her, uh, or She uh, writes the advice column, Ask Polly. I was fortunate enough to chat with her on the phone last week. It was a, quite a, a milestone in my own uh, life because I've ripped her off uh, for pretty much, I'd say, 40% of the, the articles I'm most proud of on Mockingbird. Were you like nervous? It was like a fanboy moment. Yeah, you know, there's a recording of it, and someone was transcribing it in our office, and I just had to leave the room because it was you could you could hear so much like basically blushing in my voice, and and um, you know, I'm 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 uh, I'm not like that, Scott. You know, I Leslie, I'm I'm a you know strong, stoic, masculine type. <laughs> <laughs> I, there is the the smell of masculinity here, just the power of it. Unless it's if our, Leslie, our listeners, if you were in here, I just I'm overwhelmed. It's yeah, like, it's really something it's, else. Yeah, you imagine. It was like the smell of like gladiator, you know. <laughs> Are you not entertained? So anyway, she's writing to a uh, a woman who titles herself Trainwreck, and the chief problem is why am I always too much for men? And she describes a parade of relationships where she has sort of overwhelmed the man in question, and just uh, uh, they've needed to kind of leave the room after a while, and they've made it a bit excuse perhaps, but maybe her personality, her needs, they're just it's just too much. There's an excess, and um. But she, Heather senses that she's fishing for something and then really lays it on in her classic fashion. She says, um, you're asking questions about yourself that sound wide open, but they're designed to be answered one way and one way only with the following. Of course, you're not really that bad. Uh, you aren't broken. He's a jerk. He wasn't good enough for you. No one in his right mind would get tired of you or reject you. He is the one who is broken. Then Heather writes, I want you to brace yourself because this is going to be hard to hear. You are not bad, but you are broken. I'm broken too. Almost everyone is broken in one way or another. Broken people still thrive and love and do great things, but in the years before they realize they are broken, they behave in ways that are out of sync with the world around them. They make odd or arbitrary seeming choices in order to manage their needs and expectations, or they power down their emotions completely, or they drink too much, or they create fantasy worlds, and they get angry at anyone who won't adhere to those fantasies. And that's the uh, that's kind of the diagnosis she goes on to uh, go in. It, it's interesting that she's afraid afraid of the word or she she backs off the word bad uh, which has got a value judgment of course uh and and embraces the word broken and i think you hear this a lot in christian circles actually where we'll talk about instead of talking about being sinners we're talking about we're just broken people and sometimes that drives me actually nuts because i you know it seems to deny all any and all culpability and i i but of course i know what um what heather's doing here is what she always does and that she's empathizing in an, a kind of a gigantic fashion she's working herself up into this frenzy of empathy uh in order to convey compassion to this person who's self-deluded and uh just has 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 walled off reality as she would say it and so heather uh in the piece and in most of her work, it seems like that she's trying to convey that sense of love to another person. And you, the chief irony or trick is that um, it doesn't come through uh, blanket affirmation. It comes through the uh, admission of or vulnerability, admission of weakness, and that love and uh, really uh, uh, healing uh, begins not with a denial of uh 
how hard life is and how difficult you are, but in some kind of statement, confession, or acceptance of that fact. And you see this over in her new book, How to Be a Person in the World, which comes out in a couple of weeks. It's really Gosh, remarkable. where was that my whole life? How to Be a Person in the World. Instruction manual for life. Yeah, she also, she kind of talks about like when you're broken, but you try, you'll try new things, you'll hear echoes of your brokenness and that you'll feel wobbly, but you just accept it. And it was such a beautiful article to read because I feel like I've been in that spot where I've kind of allowed, um, I've asked those questions wanting that affirmation, but I've, you know, in my life, I've had those people who have been able to speak those really hard truths and be like, oh no, you want to hear this, but you need to hear this. And I feel like most of even like my generation, especially, um, what I've come to notice is we think that empathy just equals someone who's willing to like hold you and like comfort you when you're crying and all of those things, like be that shoulder to cry on. But empathy, I think really, as this article has like pointed out, like it's more than just someone who is going to comfort you when you're having a bad day. It's someone who's going to tell you, you need to get up and continue to move on and just recognize like, okay, shake it off, recognize the facts and let's move on from there. Yeah, it's interesting because the whole dating game, right, is you try to make yourself likable by putting forth your best self, sometimes a slightly fraudulent self, so that you can convince somebody uh, or feel that they unconditionally love you so you can let out your true self. So it seems like almost to work at, 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 at you know, counterintuitively or at odds against what the means seem to work against the ends. But uh, yeah, Le- it's, a, and it's I, a conditional thing. that. that yeah, you're, you're using conditional stuff to get unconditional yeah. love. But Leal and I were talking, I told him our conversation, which our listeners heard, so I'm being repetitive, but that I have one wedding sermon kind of from several different texts, but, but my favorite version of it is Genesis 29 where Jacob, you know, he thinks he's getting Rachel, the, the, the love at first sight woman. He wakes up and it's his uncle Laban cons him and he winds up with Leah, uh, the, the ugly sister or the, or the at least sister, uh, that was, Less the was not the object of his desire, but instead of like putting her away, he makes space for her. And and all of virtually all of the prophets, priests, and kings, uh, at least the powerful redemptive ones, most of them come from Leah's womb, not Rachel's. And Jesus, Jesus himself, right? <laughs> Jesus comes from Leah's womb. So like it's it's I think when we make room for the Leah, um, that grace is born in the womb of relationships. Or as Leah uh, as Leah said about Leonard Cohen's. Uh, Broken Alleluia. It's in the broken places, uh, the cracks that the light comes in. It, yeah, it's a beautiful piece. I would encourage all of our listeners to take a look at it. It's in another weekend. And so does this one. Thank you all for being with me yet again. And Leslie, thank you, especially for getting up and spending your early yeah, morning thank you, Leslie. with David yeah. and I. It's an honor, gentlemen. And thank you, Scott. The honor is all ours. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find all the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. And if you like what you heard, please drop over to iTunes, give us a rating and a review, preferably a favorable one, or share it on social media or pass it on to a friend. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our listeners and readers. So please, if you really like what's going on, consider partnering with us financially. Your generosity makes what we do possible. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.